everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and as you might know, I am really into the history of pirates. And a lot of you are here, of course, because you are too. Whether you found us through Lost Pirate Kingdom or because of our episodes on Steed Bonnet and the Black Joke, we're so very glad you're here. Next on the subject of pirates, this week we're talking to historian Dr. Jamie Goodall about Black Sam Bellamy, his doomed romance with the so-called Witch of Wellfleet, Maria Hallett, his, um, revealing battle tactics, and the wreck of his ship, the Widda, which was only just rediscovered and authenticated in the 1980s. We are also talking about the challenge of researching pirate history, and at the end, Jamie has some great tips for finding out if you could be descended from a pirate. And given how common piracy was at the time, well, a lot of us probably are. It's a fun conversation with lots of lighthearted speculation and some great context for the golden age of piracy, and I hope you enjoy it. So here's my conversation with Dr. Jamie Goodall. All right, everybody, my guest today is Dr. Jamie Goodall, author of The Daring Exploits of Pirate Black Sam Bellamy, From Cape Cod to the Caribbean. What an amazing book. Jamie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, we're so glad to have you. I love this book. And and as audience knows, of course, I love my pirate history and I know they do as well. So I've been so excited to ask you all about this. And you've got some other great pirate books too. So uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll cover some ground today. Okay. So now, since I've kind of looked into pirate history too, I know that there are some challenges and I wanted to ask you about that before we really jump into it. So as well known as they are today, researching pirates can be very, very difficult as most of the surviving records are unreliable. So how do you piece together something like Bellamy's life before records start to appear for him uh, before 1716? Yeah, so studying pirates is rather difficult. Um, most pirates are obviously not leaving records behind. You need plausible deniability unless you, you know, want to be hanged. Um, and so, yeah, many of the accounts we have are either from people who were attacked by pirates or from colonial officials and governments. Um, and so one of the things that I do with pirate research is try to find corroborating pieces of evidence uh, rather than because I made the mistake of taking one primary source on its word when I wrote my first book which the part I got wrong was actually about Sam Bellamy oh no (laughs) (laughs) so this was kind of my uh my tribute to Bellamy and be like sorry sorry Um, (laughs) and uh, so a lot of it's kind of reading between the lines and trying to just piece together some sort of context. And with Bellamy, it's really interesting because like you mentioned, there's not really any records of him prior to about 1716. Um, But one of the things that I found most helpful is that historian Kenneth J. Kinker, he has put together sort of a Bellamy guidebook of sources, if you will, um, primarily surrounding the Witta, Uh, which is one of the ships that Bellamy seizes. And so he has an entire section where he tries to parse out Bellamy's identity through genealogical records, archival research. And so, you know, thinking about piecing evidence together, um, we have a, for example, we have a 1716 deposition from a man named Abijah Savage. And he's the captain of one of the ships that Bellamy and his crew attacked. And according to him in this deposition, he was told by the crew that Bellamy was an Englishman who was born in London. All right. So we've got him in London and Kinker, you know, he identified a couple of individuals named Samuel Bellamy that sort of fit the appropriate age and time frame who were born in London. Um, and, but then we have other evidence and several pieces of it uh, pointing to Bellamy actually being from England's West country um, because we have Captain Beer's account, we have uh, the accounts of several captives, Andrew Turbot and Robert Gilmore, and they were all advised that Bellamy was born in Plymouth and actually was said to have had a wife and family in or near the Canterbury area. Um, and so Kinker kind of runs with this. 
and he finds a Bellamy, there's a lot of Bellamy families in this one little area of Plymouth. And so kind of piecing it all together, the most likely sort of origin story of Bellamy is that he's born in Plymouth to, you know, tenant farmers. Uh, Samuel would have been the son of Stephen and Elizabeth Payne Bellamy. Um, and we can kind of piece this together because of the age. He would have uh, been born, according to these records, around 1689, uh, which sort of fits with the other information we have. And it also, to me, makes more sense that he may have been born in Plymouth because that is an area where there was a hotbed of piracy for England for a long time because it's a primarily sort of maritime trade-based uh, economy there. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. Now, I want to ask you all about the West Country. Um, I, I've spent some time there, and, and I think it's very beautiful. But but before we get there, I do actually have a listener question for you about sources. Uh, okay. Very exciting, I know. <laughs> but it is. Uh, so this question comes from friend of the podcast, author Ian McDowell. So one major source that people rely on today is A General History of the Pirates by Captain Charles Johnson, which many people believe was actually written by Daniel Defoe. Is that still the case? Is he still thought to be the author or are historians considering other possibilities? There are still a, a small group of people who uh, are really heavily invested in the narrative that it was uh, Daniel Defoe, um, who I always, I always just think Willem Defoe, and I'm like, that would have been... That an amazing mashup yeah, but <laughs> <else>. <laughs> I digress um but I'm in the camp that sort of views him more in the realm of like Shakespeare right that there may have been multiple authors kind of working together and you can kind of see that in the style of the writing and how it mm -hmm. kind of changes in segments but also just the way that it's written I don't feel like it matches with Defoe's narrative style as well as you know it could if it was going to be his work but it is written by a contemporary we know there are pieces in a general history of pirates that we can corroborate with sort of other evidence but we also know that there's a lot of stuff that's made up um there's whole conversations recorded in the book and there's absolutely no way he would have been able to to know that even if he'd interviewed you know released captives or something I mean you're not going to get a, a detailed transcript right 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 yeah and I think you make a very good good point that it is kind of a different voice isn't it you know it doesn't really read like his books yeah 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 okay great well thank you for the question Ian and thank you very much for that answer Okay, so you made the point in the book, and I know that you just mentioned now, of course, that Bellamy's early life in the West Country, it was plagued with social unrest and economic upheaval. I thought that was a great sentence. So for context, what was going on in England at this time? How do you think it affected his early development? So in the period that we're kind of looking at towards the end of the 1680s into the 1690s um England is coming out of yet another war uh I believe this time they were engaged in the nine years war and this is where we get like Queen Anne's war and King William's war and that sort of thing and so for most of the nation um there's a, a high rate of poverty there is a um high rate of sort of I don't want to say death but like it's things are not looking good for a lot of people and so what we see is that a lot of people who are in these more rural areas like you know Plymouth West Country or uh, other coastal towns is that they are either sort of venturing to seek work in London proper um, or any of its major ports or they are then going from where they are if say West country and trying to find opportunities in the uh, British North American and West Indies colonies. And so um, this is kind of the context that Bellamy is born into is that there's, you know, economic uncertainty. And if he is the son of these tenant farmers, there are a lot of issues with the, the soil there and uh, crops are not always the most reliable in terms of their output. 
and so just this tumultuous uh, era of war going straight from, you know, the nine years war, then we kind of go into the war of the Spanish succession in 1701. Um, and so he would have been kind of raised in this almost militaristic maritime um, situation where it's just the norm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, the West Country had a reputation for piracy, with uh, Lord High Admiral Charles Howard once commenting that so many men in the region were involved in piracy that the fishing boats must have been manned by women. So yes. <laughs> what was it about this part of England that led to so many people becoming pirates, do you think? I think part of it is just geography, the location. It's a, a really great launching location for um, making your venture towards the West Indies and the North American colonies, but also this is where a lot of the free pirates, the Elizabethan sea dogs, um, many of them were born in Plymouth. And so by virtue of them becoming sea dogs, they sort of established the region as a, a maritime predatory uh, location. And so, I mean, we've got I don't know, some of the most uh, prominent of the sea dogs, we have Sir Francis Drake, we have mm -hmm. Sir John Hawkins, Sir Walter Raleigh, all of them are from this area. And they are all very heavily invested in, at the time, privateering. It's a very fine line, of course. But, um, and so I think this is partially part of the reason that the shift from these sea dogs to what we consider the golden age pirates. I think that's what allowed this shift to occur in the West country specifically. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and of course it's, it's what they've got, right? They're surrounded by sea. You've got the major ports of Plymouth and Bristol. It's just what's there. Right. Mm -hmm. So like many others, Bellamy came to piracy through the Royal Navy. So what were conditions like in the Royal Navy at the time? And why do you think so many left to become pirates? Well, the only thing the Royal Navy had going for them in terms of personnel morale was rum rations. Let's be real. <laughs> uh, and they were very stingy with those in many cases. But if you were enlisted in the Royal Navy or in some cases um, captured and forced into work for the Royal Navy. Um, it was long hours, harsh conditions, bad food, if you got any food at all, delays in your pay, reductions in pay. Um, and so a lot of men in the Royal Navy just got really fed up with the, the beatings and the harsh treatment and uh, frankly, the financial instability right if you don't know if you're going to get paid by the royal navy or not like what's kind of the point uh and so i think because of that piracy looked rather appealing in the sense that you would be free to kind of make your own choices uh so you could go where you wanted to go attack what you wanted to attack um and also the opportunity for a great payday um, you know, obviously much higher than if you were getting a wage from the Royal Navy. So uh, very tempting, I think, uh, in that regard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and with life being that difficult anyway, and, and of course, like so many people went to sea and they just never came back. So yeah. if you're if you're going to have kind of like a short, difficult life anyway, you might as well try to get rich, right? So right. I mean, you can understand why they want to. And obviously, like the, the punishments don't sound very fun. You can get whipped <laughs> for just about anything. So yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> I think I think I would have been with him, honestly. But yeah. So when people think about kind of the golden age of piracy, you know, like what we think about, like in the movies, you know, this kind of mm -hmm. this high point, this very short period of time, uh, most people think of like Caribbean, right? Or maybe right. they think of Charleston or Savannah, kind of like at the, the northernmost point, but that is not where it stopped. New England was part of it too. So how much of an impact did piracy have on New England and how did New England influence piracy? I would say that in terms of impact or influence, piracy really helped to fuel a particular style of economy in New England. It was already um, a maritime based sort of economy. It doesn't have the great landscape and soil for cultivating things like tobacco, 
like its Chesapeake counterparts. And so it was just sort of an easy fit too to kind of turn towards piracy. Um, lots of fishing. So there was a lot of kind of pirating of each other's fish. Um, <laughs> and also there's a really big um, population of pirates. I say really big, but in the context of the colonial era um, in Halifax and the Nova Scotia area. And so it, I mean, it extends as far north as you can you know, probably get. And I think one of the things that's interesting for New England is that they have a very different sort of social structure than some of the other colonies, especially the Southern colonies. They're established for very different reasons. Um, not religious tolerance, as we are told, but more tolerance for me and not for thee. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think this also enabled a very interconnected familial network, mm -hmm. you know, sort of a system where families became really close. There's a lot of, you know, multiple generations that are very quickly developed there. Um, and so you see piracy sort of influencing not just the economy, but also the ways in which people engage with each other in social interactions. Um, in particular, uh, very similarly to New York, it was not uncommon to, you know, be friends with pirates or to have loved ones who are pirates. And, you know, you just kind of went with it because as long as they're not bothering you and your local economy, then it doesn't really affect you. Uh, and I think that's sort of the way that a lot of people viewed it. Um, and for New England, it's just a really interesting way of taking goods that may not have been traditionally sent to the Caribbean. Uh, I mean, this is a very um, sort of natural resources extraction location. And so, you know, a lot of the uh, Caribbean colonies relied on New England timber, but then you could also see some of these more luxury goods and dyes and stuff that make their way into the Caribbean that may not otherwise have done so. And I think that's one of the major elements of piracy sort of writ large is that they are not just stealing stuff, right? They're stealing stuff and then selling it or distributing it in various places. And those might not be places where stuff like that would have ended up. Mm, yeah, very interesting. So how did Bellamy end up there? Well, if we understand Bellamy to have been in Plymouth, the he first surfaces in the records of uh, him landing at uh, Easton. I may, I may be saying that wrong, New Englanders, please don't kill me. <laughs> um, but basically he lands in Massachusetts in late 1714, maybe early 1715. And the draw would have been that at the, you know, in 1714, the end of the war of the Spanish secession, which means that not only are many of the men of the Royal Navy out of jobs, but privateers, you know, they're no longer needed. So they're out of jobs. And so a lot of men and even women at this time took advantage of a, a shift to these other regions just to try to find employment or to find some sort of stable economic uh, situation that they weren't experiencing anymore in England. Mm, yes. Okay. So around this time, this is, this is when one of the, the most famous sort of Bellamy stories comes into play. So <laughs> tell us about the witch of Wellfleet. Who was Maria Hallett? Uh, Maria Hallett. What a legend. Um, well, there are many different stories about who Maria Hallett was or may have been or if she existed at all. Um, I believe there is an entire book dedicated to the, the local lore surrounding her. But sort of the more prominent story is that Bellamy is hanging out in this tavern and he's just, you know, chilling by himself. And he happens to look out the window and he sees the most beautiful woman he's ever seen just outside by a tree or something I, you know I don't know but and he realizes he just has to be with her and they end up sort of becoming these star-crossed lovers because he is the poor and lowly sort of English sailor and she 
is generally believed to be the daughter of a prominent wealthy New Englander uh and so you know they, they come together and they want to be together but Bellamy realizes he can't wed her and then the story goes that you know they consummate their relationship regardless <laughs> and Maria becomes pregnant and it leads to this whole fiasco and that is how she sort of shifts to becoming the witch of Wellfleet um, because she's sort of shunned by society. Hmm. Yeah, that's such an interesting name. It makes you wonder, like, did anybody actually think that she was a witch or is that just something that they called her because she was a bit of a bad girl? I think it's probably a little bit of her being a bad girl, but also I think it was just a really easy moniker to give to women who didn't fit social norms or who behaved in ways that seemed odd and so uh and I think part of it one of the uh one of the rumors was that she had the child but then she killed it uh by making a pact with the devil or something so that may have uh-huh. influenced the idea that she was a witch um but I mostly think it's misogyny in action. Yeah, yeah. The the whole story about killing children. I mean, that that's like classic witch stuff, you know, yeah. like it's just the kind of thing that like they they just make up, you know, about women. You know, who oh, knows yeah. what she did, right? Like maybe she went and she was successful in another town and maybe the baby lived and she lived happily ever after. I mean, but we we don't know, do we? No one knows no. what witch to her. No one knows if she was real. That's yeah. We have like a few pieces of evidence of a woman named Maria Hallett mm-hmm. or Mary Hallett being in the area. But beyond that, there we don't have any real information about her or who she might have been. Yeah. What do you like to imagine happened? Do you have any theories? I like to imagine that, you know, she and Bellamy, they, you know, they find true love in each other and he really does want to go off and make his fortune so he can come back and be very you know debonair and win her father's approval and marry the love of his life and I think what ends up happening is that I sort of lean towards the theory that if she existed and she was pregnant she had a stillbirth and that is why people started to um believe that she had killed her child um because she then started behaving very bizarrely uh and then I like to think that you know she finds out what happens to Bellamy and she does become the witch of Wellfleet I like to picture her in like a little cabin by the sea very practical magic-esque right uh the cousin Maria so Maria Halep cousin Maria I'm just saying (laughs) (laughs) there you go I just watched that the other day that's that's such a great uh great reference let's hope that that's what happened to her and that is so interesting that that you mentioned that possibility that it could have been a stillbirth and I mean that's it's always so tragic when that happens but that that calls to mind um I know in England around this time they had these very interesting laws about uh about like so-called infanticide like if if a woman had a baby that died for any reason you know, like she could be hanged for that because you could, you would have to um, prove that she didn't kill the child instead of proving that she did. So anybody could accuse her of that and and she could lose her life for, for suffering something like a, you know, like a stillbirth or sudden infant death syndrome or any other kind of horrible thing that could happen. And that just seems so just outrageously cruel, you know, to people who are already suffering this terrible loss. Um, but you know, of course, it you know is is very very common and and very sad. You know, these these laws are just so so backwards. Um, so it's a good thing we don't have that anymore. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh my goodness. For now, yeah, right. <laughs> For now. For now. Yeah. Goodness. Well, I I like that idea that that she became you know the the practical magic ancestress. Let, let's hope that that happened. And they're all descended from pirates. <laughs> there we go. See? <laughs> yeah. Figured it out. I like that. So of course, a lot of people think um, that if this story of of Maria is true, then then this is really the the push that that Bellamy had to go off and become a pirate, make his fortune, and be able to come back and and have something to give this woman who who he loves mm-hmm. and he wants to marry. So his career as a pirate was relatively short. It was only about two years before his death in seventeen seventeen. So can you talk us through those two tumultuous years? How did he become known as the Prince of Pirates? 
he was a very interesting individual in terms of how he interacted with people. He was not known to be ruthless or bloodthirsty or anything like that. Um, and so by all accounts, the initial plan was for him to find his fortune at the wreckage of two Spanish treasure ships off the coast of Florida. This would have been early 1715. Uh, the Spanish not very good at navigating <laughs> hurricanes and stuff. Um, and so this wasn't really piracy in the traditional sense of like attacking a ship or anything, but you know, this was wreck diving and that was sort of his plan. And so he realizes though that he kind of needs money. He needs a ship, he, you know, he needs help. And he happens to head to Boston in the summer of 1715 and meets a man named Paul's Grave Williams, who's uh, a successful silversmith in the area, comes from a pretty wealthy family, a, a well-respected family. And so when Williams finds out that Bellamy's trying to make this trek to Florida to get all this gold and silver, he's like, why don't we join forces? We can use my money and your seafaring skills and we'll be unstoppable. So let's do this. Uh, and so that's sort of the the start of the, the major exploits. And so they spend the rest of 1715 getting everything together. And by the time that they get to the wreck, uh, six months have passed and there's, you know, they're not getting anywhere. Um, the Spanish had very quickly set up sort of a blockade trying to recover their own stuff. Um, and what was left had largely been picked through by pirates with better timing. Um, and so by that point, they realized we need to go upon the account, which means we need to turn pirate if we actually want to, to make any money. And fortunately for him, he found the crew that had gone with him for wreck diving to be open and willing to this new venture. And he's pretty successful really quickly in early 1716. So not, you know, just a few months after he got started, um, they had already seized several ships. Uh, so they're sort of building a small convoy of ships, a little flotilla, if you will. And during this period, I mean, it is kind of wild. He goes from Florida at the shipwreck. Uh, he encounters the privateer turned pirate Henry Jennings. And, you know, Jennings offers to give him information and advice. And they, uh, one of my favorite stories is actually about, um, they're sort of trying to work in cahoots with Jennings and they're, they decide to launch this attack on uh, a ship that's sort of near the coast of, I forget which island it was, but, um, Bellamy's men, they decided they would coordinate the physical attack and sort of use this as a ruse to, to open up the area for Jennings men to come and sort of clean house. And I think I wrote this in the book, but it is very much a Monty Python sketch in my head because <laughs> according to one of the depositions of uh, Jennings quartermaster, Alan Bernard, he was told, so this is, you know, telephone happening here told by someone who was told um and he was told that Bellamy and Williams decided to use a very unique tactic to distract or perhaps terrorize the the Frenchmen that they were going to seize stuff from and the crews of both Williams and Bellamy decide they're going to take off all their clothing literally all of it Okay. And they are going to go up to these Frenchmen wearing nothing but their ammunition boxes, their cutlasses, and their pistols. And so that's what they do. They approach this French ship, the St. Marie, in their uh, periaguas, which are these little canoe-like things. And according to the man who relays this uh, account to Bernard, he said he had never seen such a sight before. And I feel like if being approached by this like menacing group of naked but heavily armed men doesn't put the fear of God into you, probably nothing would, right? Because you have to be thinking, what are these people on? Uh -huh. And if they're crazy enough to do this, what else are they crazy enough to do? So I love that particular story. 
uh, and then it sort of shifts into Bellamy and Williams backstab Jennings and make off with uh, part of the treasure while he goes and chases another ship. And at that point, they meet up with some of the flying gang, uh, which is sort of a like a pirate board, right? The um, Sort of the who's who of pirates and they would kind of coordinate together. And that's when he meets Benjamin Hornigold and they partner for a time. And then that's how he meets uh, Olivier Levasseur, who's also known as Labousse or the Buzzard. And so he works with Levasseur for a little while before amicably parting ways. And so by early, so in this one year, he's just kind of made his way throughout the Caribbean, sort of bouncing between these different pirate groups and individuals. And by early 1717, he had amassed a pretty decent little flotilla of ships. I mean, he had his flagship at the time, Williams had his ship, and then they had, you know, several other ships that they were bringing with them. And I think high on this success, they decide that they're going to target something even bigger. And they decide that they need to maybe make their way back up the North American coast towards New England. I mean, Williams hadn't seen his family in, you know, almost two years. Um, for Bellamy, I'm sure he wanted to, you know, if Maria existed, I'm sure he wanted to see Maria, make sure, you know, she's still around. Um, and it also would draw attention away from their Caribbean activities, right? If they got out of the, the Caribbean area. Um, and so this is sort of where we, the Bellamy near the end, right? Um, just quick, quick success, equally quick downfall. Just imagine, you know, doing all of that in like a year, you know, and also considering like how slow travel can be like by sea, you know, yeah. like, like you're not just like running around in like fast cars, although his ship was very fast. So yes. the widow was legendary. Can you tell us a little bit about it and uh, how it was lost and then found again? Yeah. So the Witta was originally built to be a slaving vessel. Mm -hmm. um, it would launch from England to the uh, West coast of Africa, particularly I think around the gold coast area. And the idea was that it would go there make its way to the colonies, uh, particularly in the Caribbean where the English uh, needed that forced labor the most. Mm -hmm. um, then they would venture to North America where they would offload the remaining enslaved human cargo, just, just the whole idea of ick. But yeah. then they would pick up goods from the colonies and go back to England. So it would be like, you know, that triangular trade route. Um, and it was built in such a way that it would help maximize the space for storing cargo. Um, and it was also designed in such a way that it was it was meant to be as fast as it could be, given its large size, because they knew that pirates would often target uh, slaving ships because of how valuable they were, um, or they would be. Uh, potentially harassed by the Spanish or the Portuguese uh, who were very unhappy with the English uh, getting involved in the transatlantic trade of enslaved peoples. Um, and so it was just this magnificent ship and it goes on its voyage. Um, and I think at this particular point, they have captured a large group of enslaved Africans. They are making their way to the colonies and uh, I think they'd uh, like sold many of the enslaved people as they then went towards the North American coast uh, but they made a mistake in kind of trying to take a shortcut which put them straight through a, a well-known sort of pirate chokehold area uh, and so Bellamy obviously is going to take advantage of this opportunity right um, and so he does. He very easily takes this ship, actually. Um, I think part of it is that the crew of the ship were like, this is not my boat. I, don't hurt me. You can have it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is how I feel like you should always be like, never lay down your life 
for somebody else's property. Yeah. Dumb. Don't do it. <laughs> but this is the ship that Bellamy decides to make his flagship now. So then there's some shifting of crew members around. And now he's got this massive flagship. Um, and they make their way towards New England. And at some point, he and Williams uh, get sort of parted, separated. Uh, according to some of the records, it was because of some bad weather. But I mean, Williams was going to veer uh, a little further uh, south. Like he was going to stay a little further south than Bellamy was going to anyway. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. They had already had a plan to meet, like come back together. But unfortunately for Bellamy and his crew members, uh, I think there were 146 people aboard the Witta at the time. And that was crew members, captives, and enslaved Africans. And they start to notice some fog rolling in and it gets thicker and thicker and they try to stick together. But I don't know how many people are familiar with sailing. I've never sailed in my life, but I mean, I've been on boats. So I feel like it kind of counts. But if there's fog, it can be very difficult to tell how close you are to the coast and how far out to sea you are. And so it's very easy to lose your bearings. And so even though Bellamy and his crew were really familiar with the coast of Cape Cod and sort of the shoals and stuff that were there, uh, this nor'easter that just blows in, it they lose track of where they are. And... Bellamy ship so the Witta ends up crashing into the coast I mean this ship within 15 minutes I think was like busted to smithereens and of the 146 souls on board only two survived oh man or two, yeah two are known to have survived uh Bellamy not one of those which was the mistake I made in my first book oh sure well you know we can we can hope you know in our our sort of our our fan fiction we can pretend that he escaped and lived happily ever after with maria um <laughs> now of course you you mentioned that um there were a number of enslaved people on board so how did bellamy interact with with this with slavery was he also trading people we don't have specific records that he was actively engaged in the trade but i mean it was generally an accepted practice i mean mm -hmm. you had some pirates who were very um egalitarian and it's sort of this uh floating democracy that Marcus Redeker has sort of built a narrative around and you did have pirates like that and they would free enslaved people and they would either you know set, give them weapons to say have at the people who enslaved you and goodbye they would you know take them somewhere and let them settle into maroon communities or they would adopt them into their crew uh if the person was willing but there were plenty of pirates who were more than willing to engage in the trade and to enslave Africans on board their own ships. Uh, so it it's one of those very fine lines when we look at uh, Black men aboard pirate ships um, to have a clear understanding of were they a willing participant, a willing crew member, or were they enslaved? Because the records that you have are obviously from other people and so it's really hard to navigate that particular uh, line of inquiry yeah so so we don't really know where he fell on that issue that's it's kind of hard to tell so I understand that the widow was found again recently the the wreck at least yeah well if you consider 1984 recently <laughs> well you know compared to 1717 I suppose fair <laughs> I, I feel old so when I 1984 being recent I'm like oh I love it um <laughs> yeah so Barry Clifford he is a person from New England who his whole life had been obsessed with tales of the sea he really loved the maritime lore of New England you know he was well, very familiar with the story of Maria Hallett and so he was pretty well immersed into the legend and stories of uh the so-called Black Sam Bellamy and at one point he is 
I think thinking about a career change or trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life. Um, and he has this dinner party, if I recall correctly. And I forget who the person was that asked him this. I keep thinking Tom Brokaw in my I head. Think it was but... Walter Cronkite, wasn't it? Yeah, I think maybe. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those like, when I read the name, I was like, oh, of course you would have that person over for dinner. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and so Bellamy, or he tells this story about Bellamy to his guests, like he always does. And this uh, individual is like, well, why don't you go find him? And he's like, why don't I? And so he, you know, this is the early to mid 1980s and he gets some funding. He gets the materials and stuff necessary to start doing some diving. And he does research to try to pinpoint um, more specific locations where they should target or focus their efforts. Uh, and ultimately they find the Witta, uh, which was I think officially authenticated because of the bell that was found with the wreckage, which had the widow's name on it, I think, but it is the only authenticated pirate ship to have been rediscovered, if you will. Um, there's been a lot of work, you know, into the potential of Queen Anne's revenge, but still the widow remains the only authenticated pirate ship that's ever been, uh, excavated mm, yeah gosh that's so interesting and so tragic that they they crashed so close to shore but they still weren't able to survive yeah well and so this would have been in uh late april and mm. you know at that point new england in april in a nor'easter it was really cold yeah <laughs> and so even if they uh even the men who had been able to swim to shore or get to shore, um, the coroner deduced that the majority of them died from exposure um, right. just because of hypothermia and uh, that sort of thing. And so uh, if they didn't drown, that was the other way that they passed. Wow. It's such a tragedy. My goodness. So what is the legacy of Black Sam Bellamy and the Golden Age of Pirates? I think the legacy is what you want it to be. <laughs> um, I think for some people, the the life of people like Sam Bellamy really um, inspire their own thinking about freedom and self-expression and the idea of, you know, making a name for yourself in some way. Um I think for others, the Bellamy and his colleagues or his cohort probably represent a very anti-capitalist stick it to the man sort of mentality. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, I think the legacy is just that we tend to make historical figures into either martyrs or icons or hold them on pedestals that they probably shouldn't be. We've romanticized pirates greatly, but, mm -hmm. you know, researching the lives of these individuals, they're not these like larger than life figures. They are average men whose names we don't know because there are no records of them. There's no ship manifest with their names on it or anything like that. And so they're just average people who maybe wanted adventure, maybe just needed to make some money, maybe used it as a way to support their families. Um, and so for me, that's sort of the legacy is that, you know, you never know your ancestor might have been a pirate, mm -hmm. but there's just, you know, there's just no record because they survived. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, make a little bit of money and, you know, buy a farm or something. And, you know, it could have been very common. Yeah. I mean, it actually was fairly common. Uh, a number of the pirates that I've researched over the years, um, like there were these brothers in Bermuda who used their pirate earnings to purchase significant plots of land on Bermuda uh, where they would then continue to make money by renting it out. They're very business savvy pirates they were. And, you know, in Philadelphia, uh, a number of the pirates who ended up there went uh, sort of west into the colony 
of Pennsylvania and they bought themselves property. And so um, I am pretty convinced that pirates who returned to their hometowns or, or sort of settled in certain areas, not only did they purchase property, but I feel like many of them may have started their own businesses, right? I like to believe that there's some old pirate, right? That, you know, he had been sailing in the 1650s and then uh, comes back, he opens a tavern in Massachusetts in 1670 or something. And then he just talks to the young bucks about how to, how to become pirates and back in my day, right? Um, and everybody's just like, yeah, yeah, all right, grandpa. Like, yeah like sure. yeah you yeah, were yeah, a pirate. pirate you knew blackbeard <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. But maybe you did you know that's so interesting so is there a way for people to to research this stuff in their own family history if they're if they're interested in their ancestry wanting to know if anybody could have been involved in piracy probably the best records that you would find regarding that is going to be um some genealogical records that exist in um, various state archives. Um, so you would have to have a pretty decent understanding of your lineage and sort of where your ancestors had settled and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's tricky though, because you do have to have little bits of information, right? Like, like what Kinker did with Bellamy, you have to at least have either a name or a birth year or something that you can at least, you know, cross-reference with those genealogical records. And I mean, if you have a, a share a last name with a pirate that you come across, uh, check the um, court records. Uh, many of the trials that occurred because pirates were so, you know, interesting to their contemporaries, uh, a lot of the trial transcripts were published right they were compiled into a book and published and so you can find a lot of those online um the calendar of state papers which has the colonial office records of the uh of america and the west indies that's freely available online i think there's like 40 volumes um so good luck <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah but it would take it would take some serious digging i think if you wanted mm -hmm. to try to trace your lineage to a pirate but it is possible that is so interesting. I get people asking me about that all the time. So I'm very happy I can direct them to a proper answer. <laughs> that is great. So here's a sillier question for you. So are you watching Our Flag Means Death? I It is in my queue. I haven't started watching it because I, I am a, a binger. Mm -hmm. And I know that once I start it, I'm just going to binge the entirety of it. And the problem with that is I have a job. Yeah. So I actually can't do that. And I have ADHD, so it would stress me out to to stop <laughs> midway yeah. through the season. Uh, so, but yes, it is in my queue because uh, it is, I, you know, I've seen the previews, I've seen clips, it looks fantastic and I'm very excited to watch it. Yeah, I really recommend it. I'm really enjoying it myself. Uh, I haven't started season two yet, which I know some of my friends will be, you know, absolutely outraged to hear. The first season was <laughs> excellent, very good. And um, although, you know, it's, it's really, it's, silly kind of on the face of it one one thing that really impressed me is like how much actual history that they use like a lot of yeah. the details about uh steve bonnet and his ship that's all real you know it's absolutely incredible um we had an episode on him last year and it was it was just so interesting how many different things that they had taken from history so um i i hope you like it i think it's really cool i'd love to hear what you think but my uh my follow-up question about that even if you haven't watched it it's okay who would your ideal actor be to play sam bellamy do you think oh Hmm. That's a tough one. I'm trying to think of some suave, black-haired, debonair actor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would. You know what? I would love to see Patrick Dempsey play Black yeah. Sam Bellamy. Okay. Yeah, I could say that. <laughs> yeah. Just he was what McDreamy in. Uh, Grey's Anatomy, right? Yeah, he'd be like Captain McDreamy. Yeah, I, <laughs> I could, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Why not? That's a good answer. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. So, what's next for you, and where can we find more about you and your work? 
what's next? Uh, napping. I yes. Think. Yeah. <laughs> this is my fourth publication in three years. So oh my goodness. Um, yeah. I, uh, my partner said that I have to take a break. I'm not allowed to write any more books right now <laughs> because they're like, you need to sleep at some yeah. point and <laughs> just get some rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think next right now is just, uh, rediscovering what it is that I loved about pirates that got me into it to begin with and trying to figure out where would I want to go next I've done you know the three local histories now and I don't know maybe maybe someday I'll turn my dissertation into a book but you know that'll require a lot more research so that's a future me problem (laughs) you've got options that's great yeah and then you can find me pretty much everywhere um twitter instagram blue sky mastodon um i have a website jamiegoodall.com trying to think if there's anywhere else (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so i'm on a lot of different platforms and uh, it's uh most of them are all the same handle so it should be easy to kind of cross find me on the different platforms Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, we will uh, absolutely recommend this book to anybody. It's it's great. And, uh, and thank you so much for being our guest today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Jamie Goodall for being our guest today. Her new book is The Daring Exploits of Pirate Black Sam Bellamy, From Cape Cod to the Caribbean. And you can find her at jamiegoodall.com. I would also like to thank our amazing patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adrian Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Scott Lohman, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. Now, it is getting to be that time of year again. Uh, Towards the end of the year, we like to do a little something extra special for our patrons. So if you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. And you can get in just in time to receive one of our holiday cards. Um, It sounds a little silly, but uh, every year I try to do some uh, reproduction Victorian uh, holiday cards and and I send them out to all of our patrons. So if that sounds like something that you would be interested in, you should check us out. Again, you can find us at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, but there are other ways to support the show too. You can also rate, review, and subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, or Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History. We'll post some photos from today's show on our Instagram as well. You can also check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com and find links to our guests in our online merch store there too. There's all kinds of great stuff up there, so stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you, but we always would. See you next time.